0: This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast, an extension of the Pitch and City. I'm Brock Wilbur, the editor in chief of The Pitch, and also the host of this show, doing a smooth jazz voice. How is everyone out there? I am enjoying the lowest of the low. Uh, I have been going through a time, personally, professionally, uh, elsewhere, and I know that at least one of our listeners. Likes to worry about whether or not I'm okay. Probably more than one of you. I am. I am very okay. And a thing that turned the corner for me is recognizing the opportunity in the apocalyptic. Um, I always used to think that I would find the silver lining in things. And I don't. Uh... And at the point in my life when I found the silver lining in things, I was doing it wrong. Uh, Toxic positivity is absolutely a thing. But in the day-to-day, there is so much in failure where you can find a place to do something good. And I feel like the last month of my life has been nothing but that. Which means I'm okay. Once again, listener... I am fine. I'm doing well. In fact, things are better than ever, despite the situations. And that is because I just started looking for the spots in between the spots. It's kind of nice. Sometimes you find something and you're like, you know what? I'll cling to what could happen there. And it's nice. Uh, I feel like it's a thing that you figure out in your (laughs) mid-30s. if you're going to succeed at that. Um, I certainly couldn't have done this at 28. Um, but now I'm there and it feels good. And I am on the brink of the best part of my entire life. And all of that has come from huge catastrophic failures. Uh, it is interesting to be in the space in between, to be like... Okay, that hurt. That is what could happen. Let's figure out if there is a bridge betwixt the two. I'm very excited for that. Uh, we have a great episode this week. Um, we have two Nick's Music Corners. Uh, we also have an incredible reading and a great interview with our award-winning she hates hearing that award-winning food critic, Liz Cook. Uh, let's dive into the first, Nick's Music Corner.
1: Hello, I'm Nick Basic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Has it really been almost six years since rapper Steady P released his last album, Picture Perfect Broken Home?, Hell, it's been almost four years since anything released on his long-running label IndieGround at all, so getting this brand new album, entitled S.O.S. Toxic, from the man otherwise known as Ray Pierce, is a blessing and a half. While the album is definitely a return to form for the longtime musician, it's all about quote, releasing the pain we all go through throughout life and art and welcoming the healing process with acceptance, end quote, according to a Steady P Facebook post. It's some heavy shit. That said, there's a bit of levity to be found in the SOS Toxic track "Out of Pocket," featuring St. Louis's DJ Moth. Uh, the song is built around a simple drum beat and a sample of the Scooby-Doo theme, making it both fantastic and also vaguely appropriate for the holiday season in which we currently find ourselves. Seriously, though, every spot on this album only elevates it. With verses from The Abnorm, Louis Rip, and Approach, among others, this is an old-school reunion that shows you how it's done. SOS Toxic is available at SteadyP, that is S-T-E-D-D-Y-P, .bandcamp.com, and here's Out of Pocket.
2: on my lawn, still copping my sneaker stock and rando jersey taunts, descendant of the masked one in many marathons, her need for brands and soapboxes for which the rest is standing on, okay. label owners really for slave trauma, stamping pawns, counterclock cultivators, stoked seeds in my carry on, dying to live, boy are planning premature pattern Dark man X, double K's, Vendetta, Ooh. Big Vaughn, Chess, and forever thankful for those songs, all moments and thoughts are riding wrongs, no fear pong. Ooh. Monkey bars and muddy waters forever be dropping bombs Until this homegrown gritter, a veteran or catch vertigo I live the rock mics in 3D Former goal was 4D and tapping out of reality <gasps> Zev X lost Sub Rock okay, Steady lost Tracy and never got over Tupac Can't stop, shit. won't stop You, 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 Oh Not down my total pole at mountain top. Native dying for memory. No need for saucer building. box, I swear I never flopped. Here's a clue to protect the cash dance. No drunk driving groupie chasing. Kiss rule, basic math. Okay. I only play the games that I win at. And gifted a local legend A crisp pair of broken bats Bojack, 30 for 30 Coughing outside a coffin Steady plotting on your camp Until I'm content Ooh, in my coffin okay. Never forget what I'm fighting for Reason my edge protected And never forgotten more Can't protest black lives matter Cause all lives for your employer matter more So kicking down these racist doors keeping scores. Falsehood Falsehoods, foofas, tall tales And mostly fraud Fighting faith in the future And lacking a paying solid job Make way for the last Other about that action Local heroes, please save the last dance My eyes closed Ooh, on the free throw you, 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 Little sucker you, 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 you,
0: Coming up next, our friend Jason from
3: Stolen Dress Entertainment is reading Abby's piece, Rogue's Gallery. Rogue's Gallery. Overland Park's David Dismalchin is savoring the fruits of his twisted labor by Abby Olchesi. There's no shortage of great creative talent with their roots in the Kansas City region. We're the hometown of Gillian Flynn, Janelle Monet, Heidi Gardner, Don Cheadle, Robert Altman, Jason Sudeikis, Paul Rudd, Rob Riggle, and David Koechner. Like most Kansas Citians, I feel no shortage of pride for all these folks, and I'm beyond pleased that they've displayed their support and pride for our fair city in turn. David Dismalchian hits differently. I was only aware of everyone else's KC roots after they'd already become mega successful. The Overland Park-raised Dismalchian star, on the other hand, is still on the rise. In the last eight years, he's gone from small but memorable turns in movies like Prisoners and Ant-Man to meteor roles in The Suicide Squad and the hotly anticipated Dune out this month. He's not just the native son we're proud of, he's the native son we're actively rooting for. Desmalchin is having an absolute monster of a year too. In addition to his breakout roles in two of 2021's biggest movies, his Dark Horse comic series Count Crowley, Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter, was picked up for another run. In January, he got to live out his lifelong dream of being a TV horror host during the Fangoria Chainsaw Awards broadcast. When we speak, He's in Malta on a shoot for The Last Voyage of Demeter, an Andre Overdahl-directed horror film speculating on Dracula's sea journey to London and the fate of the doomed crew that took him there. I asked Desmultian how he's handling this intense, all-at-once success. That's a good question, he responds. It turns out having all your ships come in at the same time can feel like kind of a lot. Fortunately, he tells me, he's got a good support system to keep him grounded. I can't express how grateful I am that I have the family and friends I do who helped me feel like I'm enough whether all this stuff is happening or not, Desmaltjen says. All the joy, all the gratitude, all the excitement I feel doesn't discount the fact that it's all happening in rapid succession, and in a way that feels overwhelming for my brain. At times it does induce anxiety, but it's thoroughly positive. Even his pets are famous now. While shooting the Suicide Squad in Panama, Desmaltjen encountered a stray cat that his family adopted. There was a very sweet, very malnourished kitty who kept climbing up into the video village guy's lap every day and kept wanting attention and wanting to be loved, Dismalchen says. The day I shot the I'm a superhero scene, which was one of my hardest scenes to shoot in the whole film, that cat came up and I pet her and she called me down and I thought, I'm fucked, man, I need this cat. I called my wife and she was like, yeah, of course, she adopted us and she's been part of our family ever since. Abner Bubblegum Polka Dot Cat went viral after Desmalchin posted a photo of his furry new family member wearing a miniature version of his The Suicide Squad character's costume, created by the film's costume designer, Judiana Makovsky. Desmalchin's Twitter feed, where he shares fan artwork of his characters, currently features as many drawings of the cat as of himself. Bubblegum is a unique cat, Desmalchin says. You can call her by name. She seems to know when I need a lap cuddle, leaves me alone when I don't, and lets the kids put their crazy energy on her. Dismalchen is also working on a script for a project currently titled Hide Your Eyes, a supernatural horror drama that deals with themes of mental wellness and addiction, themes that Dismalchen, who's been open about his experiences with both, has a deep connection to. Like Desmalchin's previous screenwriting effort All Creatures Here Below, which shot predominantly in and around Kansas City, Hide Your Eyes will be set in the Midwest. There's no other landscape like what you get in Kansas and around Kansas City, Desmalchin says. You can say we're making a story set in the Midwest and then go shoot it in Louisiana or Georgia, and those places are beautiful and look really cool, but they don't look like Kansas or Northwest Missouri. It's such a specific terrain that's particular and simple and simply beautiful. That had a big impact on me. Advocacy for expanded filmmaking opportunities in Kansas City is a long-term passion of Desmaltchins, but as he says, it's a long fight. One reason many big-budget productions that shoot in the United States use certain states or cities, Georgia, where the Suicide Squad was shot, has filled in for Indiana and Stranger Things, Michigan in the House with a Clock on its Walls, and Kentucky in Hillbilly Elegy, is because of competing tax exemptions, lifted location fees, or other perks that make it easier for productions to film there, creating jobs and revenue in return. Missouri's statewide film incentive ended in 2013 and hasn't been reinstated since. DeSmalton says he's actively trying to change that. The Midwest is a crucial part of the United States' storytelling, but because of something as simple as tax incentives, they can't shoot those stories here, Desmalchins says. One of my missions as a filmmaker is to help the KC Film Office to push for comprehensive tax incentives and get state legislators to get behind the idea of how much capital and business we could bring into our places if those things were on the table. That advocacy comes from a long-standing loyalty to the area where he grew up, Desmalchin credits local institutions like Clint's Comic Books, Rainy Day Books, and the Tivoli Theater with providing early creative inspiration. Kansas City in the 80s, when I was a kid, was starting to boom for a lot of reasons. It was a real bizarre melting pot of different points of view, Dismalchen says. It was very traditional in one sense, and a conservative community that also had a rad, fringe, artistic, progressive tribe of people who were finding connectivity through the arts and the culture of KC and the surrounding suburbs. Those competing worldviews, with help from supportive teachers in the Shawnee Mission School District who encouraged his interests, allowed Desmaltjen to develop strong tastes and opinions early in life, and learn to defend them. Growing up in the midst of such extremes, for me it was Reagan's conservative dominance, while being on the edge of a city that was so multicultural and had been progressive since the 1920s, that was an interesting place to start formulating ideas and opinions, Desmaltjen says. I learned early on how to fight for and use my imagination to explore ideas that went against what was acceptable or the norm in our communities. In 2015, Desmalchin returned to the Tivoli, this time as a filmmaker, with a special premiere of Animals, his first collaboration with All Creatures Here Below director Colin Shifley. He says the experience was profound. That was one of those life moments for me that was so important, Desmalchin says. Getting to be back home and seeing my films in those theaters was something I'll never forget. On October 22nd, audiences around the world will get to see Dismalchen in Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune. Dismalchen plays Peter DeVries, who serves the movie's villain, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, played by Stellan Skarsgård. This will mark his third collaboration with Villeneuve, having had memorable roles in both 2013's Prisoners and 2017's Blade Runner 2049. Working on it was pretty difficult, because I play a character who is literally and figuratively twisted. He's a human computer who's been twisted by Baron Harkonnen, Dusmalchin says. There's not a lot of conscience at play, which is usually a big doorway for me. Without one, you're kind of a computer program version of sociopathy, which was challenging to play, but very rewarding. I think we came up with something I hope people will be creeped out and entertained by. With a growing gallery of troubled, fascinating characters building up on his resume, I asked Smallton if going deep on emotionally complicated figures is something he sought out. It turns out the answer is a little inscrutable, even to him. There must be something about me that these directors feel is appropriate or kindred that they think I'm right to play these characters, Dusmalchen says. I don't know how to take that exactly, but I'm grateful for the chance to work and play complex, dark, struggling characters because they have so much to overcome, and that gives me a great journey. Why I bring so much is a mystery to me, and one I'm happy exists.
0: And now, here is my interview with Liz Cook, ahead of her Haterade Malort event. I I don't know either.
4: Liz, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience?
5: I sure would. Hello. I am uh, Liz Cook. I uh, occasionally contribute to the magazine that you edit, uh, specifically food reviews usually. Uh, but I also write uh, Hater Aid, which is a very weird newsletter where I do things like uh, lick automotive tape. Now tell me more about being an award-winning food critic. <laughs> I will tell you some things about being an award-winning food critic. I have won an award. <laughs> um, I don't know. What, what, what else is there to say?
4: We're just here to make you say nice things about yourself for once.
5: <laughs> Thanks, I hate you it. you into a corner. <laughs> Thanks, I hate it a lot.
4: Actually, in, in terms of food writing, like, uh, I have a lot of people ask me, especially other writers here, how does one write about food good? Because it seems like something that everyone's like, I'd love to try it. And then you sit down and you're like, the salt is salty. I crap. I don't know what else to say. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I mean, I guess like it's uh, a project that involves like noticing things at a deep level, which I think is all writing. So I think like anyone can do it. Um, I think where people kind of go wrong when they first start out is that they assume that like good food writing means I'm going to write three really like juicy paragraphs full of lush descriptions about a plate of French fries, which uh, very few people, in fact, want to read. So uh, it's balancing like, yes, a little bit of that kind of like, description about your subjective experience with the meal but also with like considering the restaurant within like the broader environment of the community and trying to situate it within a context that's uh, specific to the place you're writing about what is the best meal you've ever had in kansas city oh man i mean can i give you like a high-end low-end kind of answer to that so I would like, love like, the
4: highs and the lows of this. Yes, absolutely.
5: <laughs> so I have like, I have like the, the genuine honest to me answer, which is not impressive. And then like the nice fancy, like this is a legitimately great meal that I would score highly answer. So like at the top of the, the pops there, I think like the Corvino tasting room experience, it's super spendy. Like I can afford to go, do that maybe once a year if I'm lucky. Uh, but if you are in a position where you can kind of spend that, I think it's absolutely worth it. They do like, a thirteen-course sometimes tasting menu with small bites that just kind of travel across a really wide spectrum. Um, so I can't tell you like what to expect because it changes all the time. But I can tell you that I've done it a couple times and it's always been fantastic.
4: Um, You're so, saying that if somebody comes to Kansas City and they've got some disposable income, they yeah, make I would, sure to I would splash around
5: there. Yes. <laughs> Uh, The honest answer is that, um, because this is a meal I eat once a week, is um, I get an enormous amount of takeout from Taj Palace on 39 West, specifically the chili chicken, um, and I eat it in front of the TV directly from the takeout container. And this is all I actually want in life, realistically. So that's not an impressive, fancy food critic answer, but it is honest.
4: What is the worst meal you've had in Kansas City?
5: Oh, man. Wow. I mean, I've had some, I, I feel like uh, we
4: have to divide that into like, what is the worst food item? And then what is the worst experience? Because I feel like those must be different answers.
5: Yeah, so I think like the worst food item, man. I mean, some of the things I had at society were pretty up there, like just like the really terrible formed square sushi that was like slathered in more mayonnaise than you know, there was like more mayonnaise on this thing than rice. And I am a person who is not afraid of mayonnaise. <laughs> um, as for like the worst experience, I still think, and this place is still around and some people really like it, but I still think like Kamasu ramen, it's, it's, it's just the weirdest fucking place to eat a meal. You're on this like plywood Island that feels like really uncomfortable. And like, you're like totally separate from every, every other human being. Um, and I, I just like, I find it like eating there very unsettling.
4: I I want to, to go to Plywood Island. That sounds wonderful. I want to be so far away from everything.
5: Yeah, maybe that's your thing. Maybe we found the place where Brock can go to be alone with his boss.
4: Oh, no, no actually, that sounds worse. Never mind. People are better. <laughs> um, so uh, tell us what a haterate is.
5: Yeah, so uh, we had this uh, we had this whole pandemic on, and uh, I wasn't writing a lot of restaurant reviews during it because uh, restaurants were not operational or were operating in a capacity where I couldn't really write an honest review. So I still wanted to kind of flex the muscle a little bit, so I started um, a sub stack, which usually people only do after they've been canceled. So I like to think I'm kind of, you know, getting in on the, you know, ahead of myself there. Um, which is a weekly – but well, not weekly anymore. It's a newsletter where I write uh, a very weird things uh, about food, whatever kind of seems interesting to me. So I've used it as kind of like an experimental spot to do weird things that um, the pitch readers might not tolerate, like licking the aforementioned automotive tape or uh, making garlic bread-flavored chapstick, things like that.
4: You you know we we crave that here. Um, <laughs> I like to think that, uh, that Haterade was born from – Uh, a blog that you used to write where you were, correct me if I'm wrong, but working your way through the Congressman's Wives Cookbook from the 70s? (laughs) Oh, yes, the
5: 1982 Congressional Club Cookbook, which I received as a gift at a dinner party many years ago. And the Congressional Club is something that's been around for ages and still exists. Uh, But at the time, in the 80s, it was primarily, like, the wives of these congressmen, and it was, like, the cuisine that they had grown up with. So it's a lot of like wild atomic age cuisine where like everything has at least four canned items and, you know, like we're doing uh, shit on a shingle, but like pretending it's fancy.
4: I I specifically remember like Newt Gingrich's wife's casserole or something where I was like, it's not only is it a horrible looking dish, but like the people behind it are toxic too. Like it's got so many layers.
5: <laughs> oh yeah. For a local angle. I mean, I did make uh, Pat Roberts, Senator, former Senator, Kansas Senator, Pat Roberts's wife's uh, shrimp mold, which is a large savory gelatin mold uh, that you form in a, in a, a fish mold. It's shaped like a fish uh, made from <laughs> tiny canned shrimp and a bunch of ketchup and uh, various other savory ingredients. It's a real winner. So let's
4: talk about why we're here today, a passion of both yours and mine, Jepson's Malort.
5: (laughs) Yes, I would love to. I'm ready to evangelize to everyone about Jepson's Malort.
4: So Jepson's Malort uh, is uh, something that I was introduced to in Chicago because that's where it hails from, Uh, and, and Liz will describe better what sort of reverse licorice black hole of of taste this is but like it's it is a prank it is what we do to people from out of town they're like oh take a shot of this in los angeles i on my fridge i used to keep polaroids of everyone's first jeffson's malort face because they didn't know what they were getting into and it's uh it is a product that had no real following in Chicago until uh, somebody approached them like in 2012 or so and was like, Hey, I'd like to run a social media account for you. And then like made fun of it. And then people really got in on the game. Uh, Yeah. You describe Malort because you know better.
5: (laughs) Sure. So, uh, it is like if we want to describe it in like really neutral, objective terms, it is a wormwood. <laughs> it is a wormwood liqueur uh, that is uh, popular in Sweden. It's it's from of this family of Swedish liqueurs called Besk that are made with wormwood. Um, so. This uh, liqueur, as you have noted, has, it's a pretty bitter Amaro, and when I say pretty, I mean it is super fucking bitter, like one of the most bitter Amaros. Um, I describe it to new people by saying it tastes like the ghost of a grapefruit that died under suspicious circumstances. Um, uh, we describe it as the black hole for taste buds. like It just tastes like,
4: like you've inverted everything that you understand about flavor. <laughs>
5: Yes. And for years, like it's it's primarily a shot brand for the Malortes for the reasons that you mentioned, which is a lot of people find it really unpleasant. It's kind of like fun to prank your friends by being like, hey, would you like to try Chicago's Finest? Uh, but <laughs> I realized over the course of the year, uh, you know, whether whether it was love or Stockholm Syndrome, I genuinely like Malortes. Like I like the taste of it. I will I will order it as a shot myself if I'm out at the bar. Um, and I started as, as seeing... well. I, and
4: people are puzzled by it. And I'm like, well, you stopped it. And I lived in Chicago. I'm just there, I guess.
5: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I had never really seen it used in cocktails much. Um, I, I am not from Chicago. I understand it's maybe more of a more of a thing there. But then um, oh, they started... no one's
4: using it for anything but shop up there. No one tried to ever oh, okay. make it fancy or palpable. <laughs>
5: <laughs> We're not behind the times then. Um, But yeah, so like when CH Distillery, who bought Malort in, I think, 2018, they they started distributing to other states, which is when it started showing up in liquor stores all around Kansas and Missouri. And I started seeing it reliably stocked at most of the bars I went to, including like the kind of like, you know, uh, faffy upscale cocktail bars. So I started asking people just to like make me Malort cocktails, thinking like they would be horrified by this. But a lot of them already had something they had been working on. Um, Or like they talked to me about how much they liked Malort too. So I realized like there are dozens of us, right? We're not, we're not alone, Brock.
4: (laughs) So what did you decide to do with this information?
5: (laughs) Well, um, I wrote a Haterade post uh, over the summer, about how much I genuinely liked Malort and kind of digging into the history behind it, and um, trying to argue that if we treated it like the way we treat, like a Fernet or like any other, like Bitter Amaro that's beloved by bartenders and industry folk, that we might be able to, uh, you know, convert more soldiers for the cause. <laughs> so, you as we will say. So, um, I did that. I started talking to a couple bartenders who read it and were like, oh, yes, fuck okay. yeah, I love Malort. Um, and I got hooked up with uh, Ryan Miller at uh, Fancy Soda, which he's working at a mini bar right now, Fancy Sodas and Cocktails, um, and Amanda Jarnett, who barnets, bartends at the Hey Hey Club, among other places. And we were like, well, geez, we all like Malort. Let's just, uh, let's just do this. Let's see what happens. Um, and so we decided to host a bartending competition around Malort, and specifically around using Malort in cocktails. So that is happening Thursday, November 4th at Mini Bar. Um, It's gonna be a charity event to benefit um, MOXA, which is the Missouri Organization to Counter Sexual Assault. Um, And we have seven, we originally said six, but we're gonna have seven bartenders competing in this. And we had so many more applications than that from people who wanted to compete. So I have been uh, kind of thrilled to see both how many people, how many bartenders are interested in this, and also how many uh, Kansas Citians are willing to uh, take, the, take the ride with us. What's the next
4: Haterade competition?
5: Man, I mean, let's see how this one goes first and make sure I don't get run out of town on a rail. Uh, but I, I can see us going in a lot of different directions. I'm very into, like, the unsettling um, and the unexpected, uh, hence the garlic bread chapstick. So I feel like we can do something with them. Um, going savory in the wrong place, I guess, might might be the next area of exploration.
4: <laughs> Based on having uh, a Malort event with seven different bartenders, I feel like you should make this an Uber-required event. No, no human being should get behind the wheel of a car after
5: that. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, like, possibly just because they will be, like, still squinting from the Malort face. I mean, irrespective of anyone's blood alcohol concentration. Um, I think, I think that's a good, that's a good idea. Liz, where can people sign up for HaterAid? Uh, they can do that at hateraid.substack.com.
4: And where can they find you on social media?
5: Uh, they can find me on Twitter. That's where I'm most active. And that is just Liz Cook KC is in Kansas city.
4: Well, best of luck with your horrible, horrible event.
5: Yeah, well, you know, thanks for uh, inadvertently spreading the word, spreading the gospel.
4: Absolutely. Have a great day, Liz. You too.
0: And now, a bonus, Nick's Music Corner.
1: Hello, I'm Nick Basic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. I first saw Kansas City's bummer when the band members were just out of high school playing a parking lot show in the middle of the afternoon. In the intervening decade, the band has grown from a bunch of doom metal kids into a subgenre defying powerhouse, incorporating everything from early 90s AMRAP noise, to the harshness of NOLA's Thou, to the pummeling influences of Fellow Kansas Cityans Coalesce. The music of Bummer can be blazingly fast or grindingly slow, but it never loses its gut punch power. Bummer's debut LP, Dead Horse, released last week on Thrill Jockey, and I've probably listened to it once a day since it came out, if not more, finally displacing my previous go-to, Turnstile's Glow On. It's a cathartic listen after a bad day or an energy blast to get you going in the morning, but no matter when you put it on, you need to crank it loud and make your ears bleed. Speaking of Coalesce, the album's first single and lead-off track, JFK Speedwagon, features Coalesce frontman Sean Ingram on guest vocals. You can snag the album on a variety of formats at bummerkc.bandcamp.com and the album release party for Dead Horse is at the replay Saturday, October 16th with Casket Lottery and Abandoncy opening. Here's JFK Speedwagon.
0: Thank you all for tuning in to the Streetwise podcast. I've been Brock Wilbur. Please check out the work we are doing on thepitchkc.com every single day. If you ever feel like throwing us a few bucks or becoming a member, those options are on our website. Please, please, please tune in. Um, Thank you for being good people. Thank you for being kind to each other. Pitch in, and we'll make it through. bye, 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 bye.